look at embodiment and we look at listening to the messages of the body, often the first layer, which is what we're doing today, um, is noticing where there's holds, noticing where there's no's, noticing where there's contractions or closures or suffering, you know, around certain things. And instead of going, well, you just have to push through that or make it go away, say, okay, I hear you, body, essentially, right? And that's very hard sometimes because we have a you know, mentality that is, uh, if it's not good, it needs to go away, right? It has to be eliminated. But as a matter of fact, those not good sensations and feelings and everything that un kind of uncovers when you start sensitizing is actually warning signs that have been ignored, right? Or warning signs that could be heeded. And when the body has um, room to essentially send warning signs and you go essentially, you know, I hear you okay, I got you, I can, I, I hear that this isn't okay, then the system can relax. Because the body, of course, is built for survival. And all the body wants to do is survive. And so whenever you threaten survival by not listening to the messages of the body, the body will harden, push against you, work against you, downregulate uh, your energy levels, uh, shut down feeling so that the system can survive. So then we have to look at what are the barriers to embodiment. And so often when we look at the barriers to embodiment, we can see why we can't get to a certain level of whatever we want to go to. And so I typically, and this is just for the sake of making sense of this, you know, as a, as a mental concept, I typically divide it into three areas. So the first area is stress and anxiety. The second area is overload and excess stimulation. And the third one is trauma. And so those are the three massive barriers to full embodiment, full feeling, full life expression, full uh, enjoyment, full pleasure. So each of those, of course, has an overlap with the other you know, areas but I'm pulling them apart because they have different physiological requirements or, or outcomes, let's say. So stress and anxiety, and I will take all your questions afterwards. I just wanna kind of lay out the, the landscape. So stress and anxiety are an interesting, um, you know, kind of inquiry because in the human brain, let's see how I can say this, in the human brain, survival is survival is survival is survival. And what I mean by that is the brain makes no difference between an actual threat and a perceived threat. And what that means is that your catastrophic thinking about being late to a meeting is perceived at the same value as if, uh, you know, whatever. What do we have here? Um, wolves, bears? Probably not. Nothing. Okay, let's just imagine we're like, I don't know, you know, half a year ticks. Not that scary, you know. Let's just say we're in the Stone Ages and some saber-toothed tiger is coming to your doorstep, right? So um, that, that tiger at the doorstep has almost the exact same value as an extremely 
like let's say catastrophic negative thought in the system because a threat has to be perceived as a threat uh, first and evaluated later. So that's a very interesting thing to consider when you think about how the brain works and how the body has to respond because first and foremost we must survive. And so we have this really, really, really sophisticated system um, that is uh, known, as many of you know, as fight or flight and rest and digest or feed and breed. So, um, you know, parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system play together and they always play together. So it's, it's kind of a, it's wrong to not want to have fight or flight happen. You need fight or flight in your system. Homeostasis comes from a um, well-working parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system where it works together and it creates always the right balance. That's a homeostatic system. But often, of course, what happens is we focus on fight or flight because that's what happens when there's a lot of stress. So fight or flight in a human is essentially the ability to survive. And that's a very sophisticated system that has early warning signs and then a kind of an activation period and then a full-blown fight or flight response in order to keep you alive. So that's super easy to understand if we would be in a cave here somewhere and some saber-toothed tiger comes uh, you know, to the cave step. Um, it's fairly, fairly simple. You hear a rustling, uh, you start to get alert, you hear a bit of snorting, suddenly your heart will pump fast, your breathing will go fast, um, you'll get kind of almost tunnel vision, the uh, hair on the back of your neck might stand up, your extremities feel kind of tingly, um, you know, those are, you have this metallic taste on the mouth. Next thing you know is you, the, the, you know, the animal comes in and you either run as fast as you can or you fight as hard as you can. Fairly clear, right? Should you survive such an intrusion into your cave? Afterwards, you're going to feel pretty fucked up, to say it light, nicely. You'll be like, ah, yeah, and then eventually that kind of maybe if you're, you know, not a tough caveman but a sensitive caveman, you, you, you know, you weep a bit, and then what do you do next? Well, you probably have a meal, sex, and sleep. Right? That's how it goes because that's the balance: fight or flight, rest and digest, feed and breed. So that's how the system in humans as well as in all you know mammals is organized and that system's super sophisticated really good humans also have an, another very interesting uh, feature which is freeze which i'll talk about when we when we talk about trauma but i'm just focusing on fight or flight as a logical and well-conceived um, response to stress stress, danger, you know, these things. Now, when you look at modern, modern human's life, you'll see that there's a lot of um, dangers, danger signals that are not really danger to your life, um, hopefully, but they're perceived at the same value. So what that means is all the stressors that are happening all day are accumulating as if it's a saber-toothed tiger. And over a certain limit of those stressors, you're essentially going to have 
the same reaction as you have when you're in real stress, meaning your heart starts pumping fast, you get you know, high blood pressure, you get uh, tingling extremities, you're starting to breathe a lot and shallow, your, um, you know, your eyes go into full focus. And most importantly, and this is very, very important when we talk about human stress in modern age, most importantly for most of us, um, our, let's say, rational thinking function is impaired or completely eliminated. And this is really, really important to understand. In a moment of Sabertooth Tiger hits the doorstep, the last thing you need is executive function in your mind because that's too slow. Hmm. Shall I attack this tiger from the right or the left? <laughs> Would it be my club or an arrow? You're dead, right? So, and that, and that thing where essentially your rational thinking is cut out makes stress and, and with that anxiety so very difficult. So anxiety is essentially the um, physiological result to chronic moment-by-moment -moment stress, let's say, uh, signals. So some of you have heard this before, of course, because I talk about it in the nonlinear teaching, teacher training in detail. But um, I devised kind of a simple way for my clients to understand this because I used to have loads of people with heavy anxiety when I still did loads of private sessions. And of course, one of the things that's also good to know is that when you have high stress or anxiety, by the very nature of how fight or flight works, you're not able to emotionally or sexually connect with your partner properly. It's just because you're not, you're not in feed and breed, you're in fight and flight. And in fight and flight, relationship and sex and you know, sensuality and deep connection are useless. And not only useless, technically, um, potentially life-threatening, right? So uh, the reason why fight or flight and anxiety in, in, in a human body is so detrimental to all other functions is because it's an over, it creates an override. And that's also you know, very important to know when you choose practices and the things you do is when you constantly create an override, uh, you, you don't ever get to go under you know, what's happening. So I used to devised, uh, used, I devised this message for, um, or did this uh, way of talking about it for my clients that was super simple and that I still use in the teacher trainings and in, in a lot of the talks I give because it's very, very simple. I don't have a cup, but imagine I have a cup. So every human being um, has a cup, so to speak, and the cup is the receptor or there's a receptacle, I should say, for stress responses. So what that means is, um, and different humans have different size cups. Some people are blessed with a huge bucket. Some people have butt of thimbleful. <laughs> right? So that's, that, that depends on a number of factors amongst them, trauma, um, birth situations, you know, all kinds of stuff. But imagine you have a cup and that's your stress receptacle. So now you wake up in the morning in an ideal world, your cup is empty, 
and that's not true for most people, but let's just say your cup is empty. And then the alarm goes off and the alarm is very heinous and that's already your first couple of drops in the cup because it's like, <gasps> you know, and then of course the thoughts start. Oh God, I'm late. How's it going to be today? I don't have enough time. Blah, 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 blah. Drop, 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 right? Now then if you happen to have children or, you know, a stressful job, you probably already, you know, a third full by the time you get to breakfast. Um, or, you know, if you commute more drips in a cup, then you have internal self-dialogue, you know, that's dramatic in some way, drop, drop, drop. You have people come at you with deadlines and things like that, drop, drop, drop. And so by the time, you know, you get to 50% in the cup, you are now feeling stress. So the beginnings of fight or flight, faster heartbeat, faster pulse, shallow breathing, um, reduced ability to have, you know, big global thinking, um, tension in the body, bracing, you know, all of those kind of things. Get, if you get over 75%, you'll be in anxiety territory. And then you, you're really feeling it. And then if you get to 100, you'll have a panic attack. Um, or a full fight or flight event, which feel pretty much the same. So that said, um, when you look at what can you do about that, right? there's three ways to go. One is emptying the cup. And emptying the cup can be done, um, let's say, acutely, because you, have, you can feel that it's getting too bad. Um, regularly in a certain kind of preventative way, those are your two options. So what are the cup emptying activities? Everything you've ever heard about stress relieving activities is a cup emptying activity. So that could be taking a walk, taking a nap, um, having hobbies, uh, doing yoga, meditating, mindfulness, nonlinear movement, um, uh, you know, rolling around on the floor with your pets, um, music, dancing, uh, whatever, right? Like all the things, going for a walk, seeing a beautiful sunset, um, connecting with friends, physical contact, sex, you know, all of those things um, have a profoundly cup-emptying effect if they're the right kind, you know. Sometimes, you know, if hobbies can be stressful too. <laughs> Some people have very stressful hobbies. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about something you properly enjoy. So those are the cup emptying activities. And like I said, you could do them regularly so that your cup gets emptied constantly so that it doesn't get filled so much. And I should say, of course, there's other cup emptiers that are very important. Uh, the one that is often overlooked and now gets a little bit more, you know, um, let's say attention, is sleep. You know, you can use sleep as a means of completely emptying your cup so you have an empty cup in the morning. But for that, you have to actually sleep, not just sleep a bit um, or sleep, you know, in, in bits and pieces. You'll have to get seven and a half to eight hours of sleep in a dark, cool, quiet room. And so that's for most people already a challenge. But sleep is a profound cup emptier. And then the other thing that people often forget is hydration and nutrition are big um, cup emptiers. 
you can manage anxiety a lot more when you manage your blood sugar as it, result, as it co correlates with anxiety. It's a whole other science that I can get into, but not now. Um, there's also, you know, circadian rhythm regulation, um, sunlight exposure, you know, and so on and so on. There's like very intricate processes that also affect your hormones, sex hormones, sex hormones and adrenals. But so that's the cup emptying realm of things. The other one, and the second one, is reducing the drippage in the cup. So reducing the drops in the cup, and by the way, this is all in my book. So if you're making copious notes, it's all written down in the book. So you can look at it in fine detail uh, there with all the different practices and everything. But um, the reducing drops in the cup is essentially uh, creating lesser stress stimulus. So that could be anything from having a less aggressive alarm clock uh, to, uh, you know, less of a commute or a less stressful work, um, working on negative self-talk, working on, you know, reducing stressful situations and everything that comes with it. And then the third strategy, this is one that we are employing here as well, um, is getting a bigger cup, right? And getting a bigger cup only works if you only attend to the other two strategies, but you can increase capacity and you can get a bigger cup, so to speak. And so some of the things that we're doing here are bigger cup activities, amongst other things. So how do you get a bigger cup? Uh, relaxation, release, and uh, practice. Those are the three things that will give you a better practice a bigger cup. If you relax, more there's more space available in the cup, of course, if you imagine, you know, uh, the relaxation like a muscle relaxation. Um, essentially, uh, releasing is cleaning the gunk out of the bottom of the cup. That's, you know, an, another way of increasing capacity. And then the third one is to essentially um, make the cup bigger by uh, intensifying your practice, either in duration or in intensity. So those are the three things you can do for capacity building. So that's stress and anxiety. That's one big barrier to embodiment. The next one is what I call overload or excess stimulation. And that's slightly different simply because it's, it has the same physiological um, responses for the most Part, but overload has an interesting, let's say, specific um, physiological response that's super important for pleasure. And so um, in overload, what essentially happens is there's too much going on. And when I mean too much going on, that can be externally in, too loud, too much light, too many... TVs blaring, too many people talking at you, people working in open, you know, work environments where there's a lot going on, sirens, helicopters, um, you know, like all the external stuff that can happen. Bright lights is a very big one. And then internal overload is excessive mental activity. So excessive mental activity can fall in a few categories, one of which is, of course, excessive thinking and analyzing, 
where you just go on these loops of you know doing these things the other one is when you spend prolonged periods of time in your head so to speak so what does in your head mean it means you do activities that require um, that you focus up here so what do i mean by that uh, you know it's not very esoteric people always have these esoteric ideas of what that means you know and when they start going oh i'm too much in my masculine it's like no uh, your masculine is just fine you're just spending a lot of your energy up here that's not the same as being masculine and i want to make that very clear because there's so many pseudo tantric tropes around that it simply means that in, on the cortex of your brain, you emit electrical energy. And that electrical energy is finite. So that's super, super important to understand. You can emit a certain amount of electrical energy per second, and that's it. So what that means, and like, you know, if you have a computer, your computer is a bit slow, you go and get some more RAM, or you get a new computer with a lot more RAM. Brains don't work like that. You can't upgrade the, the RAM in your brain. Uh, what, so because of that, the body has developed as an incredibly fine-tuned energy allocation machine. There's, not, there's no other way of saying it. It's like so incredibly intelligent the way it goes. And what I mean by that is your body will l allocate energy where it's needed most. It's fairly simple, right? If you have 440 gigahertz per second, which is what the output of the brain is, right? We'll they say about 60 to 100 go up for body function, but sometimes even less. And the rest goes up for um, kind of more the voluntary aspects of the, of, of the organism. So thinking, emotions, activities, and stuff like that. You know, it's, don't, you know. I'm not a neuroscientist, so making this super simple here for, for the sake of dealing with embodiment. But the thing to know there is that wherever you need the energy most is where it's sent. That's why you sometimes hear people say um, energy follows attention. That's the reason for that. There's a you know, kind of a neurological reason for that. Wherever you put your attention is where the energy goes. So let's say... Um, you sit on a computer for, let's say, I don't know, six, eight hours a day, uh, and you think and you talk and you plan and you execute things and you have to, um, you know, brainstorm and get stuff done and be analytical. That's where all your energy goes. Where it is not going is where it's not needed. And guess where that is? This part of the body particularly. So anything that's here, which is what's actually needed for reproduction, proper um, you know, function of, of our um, uh, sex organs, uh, you know, pregnancy, pleasure, intuition, um, you know, the, the kind of power that comes from the lower body isn't used because you're sitting in a chair or wherever you sit, right? It's all needed up here. And that's where it goes. Now, that's not a problem. And that's why I'm always saying it's not a problem to be a good analytic thinker. It's a plus. 
um, it's necessary, it makes you very efficient, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem is that if you do that every day, all day, the repetition of that creates a pattern, a habit. And then that's your biggest pattern. You're like one of those guys who only works out the upper body. You know, you see those bodybuilders, they have like these massive arms and neck and then they have these spindly little feet. <laughs> so in the, in the world of feminine embodiment, and, and I'm saying feminine embodiment because we're talking reproductive organs, it's also true for men. So in the, you know, in the men of, um, in, the, in the realm of embodiment, um, people who spend all their time thinking, doing, doing, thinking, are like those bodybuilders, you know, the lower bodies are like very spindly, energetically, and that of course influences things like digestion, menstruation, ovulation, conception, uh, pleasure, intuition, you know, all the things I just mentioned. So it's not some kind of cultish dogmatic thing to say um, you got to get back into your body, you know, but it's not it's not the only thing you need to do. You need to be able, so to speak, to go between this and this easily and without um, one part being way weaker than the other part. So often when we do embodiment practices, what we're doing is we're counteracting the strong, um, let's say, upper upper realm, you know, upper body, mental um, doing activity that's well-developed. And what's not so well-developed is the lower body feeling, moving, um, you know, getting blood, getting, getting juice, so to speak, into the lower body. And that can be practiced as much as the other thing can be practiced. And in an ideal world, you practice both so you're actually capable of doing both and you can go back and forth between those two because I have such uh, deep-seated um, trouble with the terms masculine and feminine these days I call it go and flow because that describes it a lot less dogmatic right so you have a go mode and a flow mode and the go and most people have a much more activated and well-trained well-worked-out go mode than flow mode so how does this go with overload and barriers to embodiment? Well, if you do this all the time and you do it with a lot of pressure and stress and tension because typically the things that are go are oriented towards a certain kind of a push. It doesn't have to be, but often that's the case. What happens is when you um, get tired and when you're actually done with that and you should have to go back in your body and do the things that keep your lower body alive, the body starts forcing the energy to stay up and squeezing the energy up. And that has a very specific physiological result that becomes chronic tension patterns, which is what we worked with today. And what that is, is a slight pulling up of the pelvic floor a slight clenching of the ass, to say it very, uh, you know, very uh, roughly or coarsely. Uh, the sphincter uh, is often very tight in people who have a lot of that kind of thing happening. The belly is tight. Um, there's layers of tension in the pelvic floor and the perineum. 
the solar plexus is typically very hard. You can tell with people who have a lot of push, you can't get in there at all. It's like pushing back very, very hard, right? And then there's also intercostal tension, throat, you know, and then of course all the energy pools in the neck, the shoulders, and you see that certain kind of a tightness that becomes chronic. And that tightness that's chronic um, comes from the body having to really work hard to squeeze all the energy up and keep it there because it's not natural for the energy to stay there. But so if you habitually train for that kind of energy distribution on top of all the fight or flight responses, you also get this horribly tight pelvic floor and, you know, like very unfeeling hip belly kind of situation. And so when we look at barriers to embodiment, we look at that as a function of um, overly trained upper body energy distribution, so to speak. It's not a problem, actually. You can reverse it fairly easy. And thankfully, because it's so natural to be embodied, typically it's much easier to train for embodiment than it is to train for disembodiment or, you know, mental mental embodiment. So that's the, the, the second one. And then the third one is trauma. And when I talk about trauma, I'm essentially talking about an injury that necessitated a response. That's how I define trauma when I teach it. And what I mean by that is anything that injured you, that you had to cope against or respond to.